Um, As we look into the scriptures this morning, uh, I'd like to consider the subject, which is really not a subject, it's an object, but we'll consider it for a theme of sorts for the time that we have together. Um, Paul's jealousy over the course of his life ultimately was the knowledge of God. And when I say the knowledge of God, what I mean by that is an experiential relational fellowship with God as a living person. Um, What I am not suggesting is information about God. Uh, What I am not speaking about is little things that we might learn over the course of life based off of systems or activities or little nuances of our own personal desires or gifting or ambitions of sorts. What apprehended Paul's life was an encounter with a God that was alive and chose to reveal himself to him even in the midst of his hostility, his rebellion, his assassination of the work of God and the people of the move of the Spirit and this expression of one new man. Right in the midst of Paul running a hundred miles an hour in the wrong direction, doing the wrong things, yet glossed over with a religious facade, covered up with exterior, with externals, with image-based religiosity, covered up with all of the right activities according to systems and organizational realities, running 100 miles an hour, absent of the knowledge of God, he found himself running right into God. And it was because God made a choice to reveal himself despite the condition that Paul was living in. One thing that you learn when you walk with the Lord over long periods of time is that you cannot manipulate a revelation of God. You cannot manufacture it. You can't buddy it up. You can't buy it. You can't network it. You can't leverage social or relational strength or equity against it. God has to choose to reveal himself. It's one of the the magnificent things about the majesty of God. In Isaiah 65, he said, I made a choice to reveal myself to a people that didn't have any interest in me. I chose to unveil, to disclose. I determined out of my own desire. I moved on behalf of something I wanted, and what I wanted was to make myself known to a people that weren't even seeking me. Somewhere along the way, I think we get it compromised, right? We we begin by understanding that while we were living as rebels, God revealed himself to us. That while we were living deeply immersed in a love for the world, in a sin-satisfied life, with the pleasures of bondage and captivity and a host of addictions, that in my darkest and deepest moment of pain and trial, God, out of his own desire, chose to pursue me. He chose, out of his own longing, to come and rescue me. He chose out of this divine uh, longing that he has to reveal himself that even in my darkest and most abandoned moment to a self-satisfied pursuit, God came looking for me. This is the text of Isaiah 65. Those that didn't even want me, I chose to reveal myself to you. And Paul, running 100 miles an hour, ran right into God. You see, we have to understand that God just can't be researched. He must be revealed. Because if God could simply be researched in order for you to apprehend everything that you long to have or to know about God, then you would make God subject to you. But God is not subject to our efforts. God is not subjected to our desire. God is not subjected to all of our unique demands or our host of interests. God has to choose to reveal himself. He has to choose to make himself known. It's why even in the variety of devotional efforts that we apply in the spiritual life, and they're all amazing and they're all necessary, but they're all simply tools. They're not the end itself. They're a means to an end, and the means is the spiritual application. It's the devotional expressions. It's the tools that God has given us, but the end is the knowledge of God. We fast because we want the knowledge of God. We pray because we want to be deeply immersed in the knowledge of God. 
We worship. We come to the word. We have fellowship with the saints. We're given over in the place of obedience because we want the knowledge of God. And if we're careful, the knowledge of God is the most precious jewel. It is the most precious gem. It is the most precious resource in this life that there is to have. And Paul's life got conquered by the knowledge of God. Paul became a man that was possessed to know the Lord and to know him deeply, to know him intimately, because he had an understanding that this is what God wanted. He wanted a people that would be a holy possession. He wanted a people that would walk with him in a unique or in a peculiar way. He wanted a people whose lives would be defined by his transforming love and the power of his leadership in order to, in an ongoing way, make them a provocative, make them a peculiar or a catalytic people in the earth. A contrast between the rebel or the hostile nations of the world whose appetites were still alive to the influence of powers, who were given over to a corrupt way of life, who were living immersed in the system of the age or the sway of the wicked one. And we see this all the way from the very beginning. God reveals himself to a people through the created order in Genesis 2 and 3 with Adam and Eve. And as you progress and as it seems as if the plan of sorts, the eternal purpose has lost traction, you find in every story along the way God's consistency with the things that he wants. And it leads up to what is the Egyptian captivity. And for a period of 400 years, we have the children of Israel living enslaved in Egypt. Well, what's interesting is God chooses to rescue them. But before we move too quickly through the text, we can't consider this as some charitable act to a deserving people. This, in fact, was not the case. Ezekiel and Jeremiah and others give us insight that during their time in Egypt, even the children of Israel worshipped the gods of Israel and bowed low to their idols. Their appetites became influenced by the culture that they were a part of. Their dreams became aligned with the dreams of a wicked and a pagan people. And God said, despite how you've prostituted yourselves, despite the adultery that's alive in your appetites, I'm going to choose to redeem you. I'm going to choose to restore you. I'm going to choose to bring you out with an outstretched arm, with signs and wonders and mighty deeds of power, with a demonstration of my own love and my covenant faithfulness to you and my word. I'm going to do for you what you don't deserve. I'm coming to get you. And so we have the framework here of this amazing marriage which we understand the marriage of the Lamb and the marriage supper of the Lamb that Revelation 19 speaks of. Whenever the consummation of what this Sinai betrothal initiated is going to be fulfilled. And after God brings them out of Egypt, after two months, it says on the first day of the third month, God brings them to the mount. And he says, Moses, it's time for me to tell you what all of this is about. Bring the people near. And when they come near, God reveals his proposal. Now, for anybody that's been married, right, I'll, I'll speak to the guys for a moment. For anybody that's been married, you understand that there was a season of pursuit, or at least there should have been. There was a season of pursuit where you were attempting to pursue and to, in a certain way, woo your wife towards what it was that you desired, which was to be together forever in the place of covenant experience or marriage. Well, when you apply this same lens to Exodus and even beyond, you find that God is a jealous bridegroom, that he is a husband of sorts. And the pursuit, while the children of Israel given over with adulterous appetites while living in Egypt for hundreds of years, any man that's going to pursue a woman, one of the first things that you want insight on is, is there any competition? Is there anybody else in the picture? Is there anybody else that's in the way of what it is that I desire? Well, this would be the confrontation of sorts, which is really no competition. God tells them, I will be exalted 
above the gods of Egypt. The gods of Egypt that have gained traction in your affections, I will be exalted above them. I'm going to expose the competition. I'm going to expose the other lovers on the market. I'm going to expose those that have traction in your appetites and your affections. And I'm going to show you that I'm better than them. I will be exalted. I will be considered Yahweh, who is the Most High. And I will reclaim your affections by exposing those that seem to, right now, be living in competition in the place of your appetites. I will do that. And God brings them out. After utterly embarrassing and exposing what was no competition at all, he utterly derails the gods of Egypt as he is exalted above them. And he brings them out. And once they get to the mountain... After the pursuit, we find the proposal. God says to them in Exodus 19, in the first couple of verses, it's actually one through six, but five and six specifically. God says to them, if you will, here's the proposal. If you will listen to my voice and obey my commandments, then I will take you to be mine. You will be a holy possession. You will be a people unlike any other people on the face of the earth. I am extending to you an invitation for you to be mine, but I will be yours. And you will be a people that are defined by God dwelling or abiding in the midst of you. You will be a people where I set up a habitation in the midst of you, and we live in an experiential fellowship. We will cohabitate. We will merge property and possessions and all of what is the unique process of Jewish marriage and all of the variety of ceremonies along the way. We will consummate this thing in one day coming. But right now is the proposal because what I'm longing to have is a betrothal. God says, I want to take you to be mine. Well, that word take to be mine is the same word that if a man leaves his family and clings to his wife, takes a wife to be his. It's intimate exchange. It's relational experience. It's covenant intimacy that's alive and God designed. It's the same word for Enoch walked with God and God took him to be his because he was pleasing to the Lord. It's the same word there. I want to take you to be mine. I want to marry you as a people. He later on says, now I'm a jealous God, so have no other gods but me. Right? Any husband understands how jealous you can be whenever people start messing with your wife. Whenever people start trying to influence your bride in particular ways. And God is no different. He says, have no other gods but me because I'm jealous. Now, after the proposal, if you will do these things, I'll take you to be mine. All of the people said, we will do everything the Lord says. This is a dangerous place to be because they don't yet have any information as to what it is that the Lord is asking. Have you ever been there? So overwhelmed in a moment, caught up in the glory of God, man, in the midst of a worship gathering that's just on fire, or maybe these humble, broken moments at the altar, Lord, I'll do anything you want. Oh, Lord, I'll do anything you say. Oh, just speak to me, Lord. Oh, I want to be all yours. Really? Do you now? And in unison, they all say in response to how Moses charges them, we will do anything that the Lord says. We will do anything that the Lord says. Now, we understand that it didn't necessarily go that well because you don't find them but a few chapters later. God says, consecrate them, take three days, bring them to the mount, I'm going to come down. When I come down, I'm going to invite the people up. We're going to experience this covenant betrothal, how I long to have a people that will be all mine, that will be defined by my abiding, that will be transformed by my love and my leadership. Well, all of that sounds amazing until you actually start walking that out. And they started walking that out. And then God came down and they were terrified. And they said, we actually don't want anything to do with that. We're going to send Moses up. Moses can come back down. We'll listen to Moses. Well, Moses goes up for 40 days to be with God, to receive insight. And in a period of 40 days, they got tired of waiting for Moses. They chose for themselves another leader. They rallied around another man in rebellion. And the language is intense. 
They began prostituting themselves in wild debauchery and fornication and all types of celebratory acts with God literally visibly on the top of the mount looking down upon a people that he said he wanted for himself. They had formed a golden calf, called it Yahweh, and started worshiping it and ascribing to it glory for delivering them from Egypt. In a matter of less than 40 days. And God is on the mountain. Right? This isn't like, oh God, where are you? Oh, I have trouble feeling you. Oh God, I just don't ever know where you are. Are you near? Did you leave me? No, God didn't leave you and he's not afar off. He's on the mountaintop. And you are acting wild with God on the mountaintop. And after you said you would marry him, you are prostituting and adultering yourself with a golden calf in all sorts of celebratory orgies and crazy types of partying behavior. And God tells them, I'm going to wipe them out. Moses, I'll start again through you. I'll make your name great. And Moses says, I know you better than that. I know that my life is uniquely tied to what you're doing in a people. And so if I sever my life from the people that you've anchored me with and covenanted me to for the sake of my own individual desire, for the sake of my own individual notoriety, for the sake of my own individual gifting or ambition, he says, I can't do that, Lord. I know you better than that. He says, I know you better than that. I don't want you to make my name great. I want you to fulfill your word to your people. For what will the nations say? Won't they say you brought them out, but you weren't enough to bring them all the way into what you said to them? And Moses says, Lord, I know you better than that. I get it. You have the power to make my name great, but I want to see you be revealed as the great and awesome and faithful God because of the way that you fulfill your word to a people that don't seem to deserve it. He says, Lord, your name and your glory are on the hook for this. This is Exodus 24. He says, you are on the hook for this. You have promised to do something, and I know that you are going to do it because you're good and you're awesome and you're faithful. He says, I'm willing to forsake, hear me, I'm willing to forsake my own individual notoriety in order to see you accomplish your word to a covenant people. There's not many like Moses who identify with God and with a people and don't see that there is some stark difference where the only people that you're willing to identify with are those that have some benefit to you are those that seem to be the ones that you can leverage in order to get into what it is that you call destiny. Moses has the opportunity to bypass the mess of involving himself with a people in order for God to make his name great. And he says, no, no, I know that's not how you work. You see, there's a test in every invitation. There's a test in every seeming open door, right? Not every door that opens is a door that you're supposed to walk through. Jesus understood this in John 6. He works miracles. It says that they come after the multiplication of the food. They come demanding to make him king by force, John 6, 15. And it says that he says to them, he withdraws from the invitation. He retreats from the people's demands in order to go be alone with the Father. Because he understands, I'm not king because you say so. I'm king because my Father says so. And I don't have to walk through the door of your pressure in order to validate the things that I already know. There's not many like Moses. And Moses is apprehended by God's jealousy to reveal himself to people, but yes, also in the midst of a people. And this is what conquered Paul's life. What conquered Paul's life was God's jealousy to reveal himself to people at times who don't deserve it, which he identified himself in that category absolutely. Paul understood his animosity towards God and what he was doing, though thinking that he was working for God was actually resisting the very thing that God was doing. And he did not know the difference between the two until God unveiled himself to him in a greater way. Oh, how our hearts need to see the Lord. Because it's in seeing the Lord that we are 
sensitive or that we are ultimately able to recognize the error of our ways, right? Deception is a unique thing because the only one that doesn't know they're deceived is the one that's running in deception. It's like living with a pair of glasses on that you can't take off and everyone knows it but you. And Paul didn't understand the depravity of his ways until he encountered the Lord in a greater way. But from that moment, the knowledge of God was Paul's jealousy. The knowledge of God was Paul's jealousy. And Paul ultimately founded communities, churches, people, covenant people on the knowledge of God. Paul saw his own life as a resource that had been formed or fashioned over time in order to become a broker of God's desires wherever it was that God planted him. Paul saw his own life as a resource to the knowledge of God. It's how he instructed people. It's how he prayed for people and for churches that he planted. In Colossians 1, the language is very intense and very intentional. He says, ever since I heard of you, I've been praying in Colossians 1.9, that you would be filled with the knowledge of his will, with all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that you might walk in every season pleasing to him and be fruitful in every good deed. Paul says, so that you might apprehend or develop or grow up into the knowledge of God. For Paul, it just wasn't about systems and formalities and activities. It wasn't about the superficial external things that we at times can master to give us an image of maturity or when we have entire cultures and especially ministry culture that appreciates everything except the knowledge of God and the formation of God in a man that's been tested over long periods of time. Paul said, this is the ultimate thing to apprehend. The knowledge of God, to actually know the Lord in a real, experiential, living fellowship type of way. Do you know the Lord? Hear me, I didn't say, have you become proficient in church? I said, do you know the Lord? Because for Paul, it had nothing to do with activities. It had nothing to do with all of the externals and the images or even the application of our own gifting to these variety of environments where it creates influence and appreciation that's not always necessarily anchored in the knowledge of God alive in a man where his life becomes a resource or a broker to God's purposes. But it's what you can contribute in a particular environment. And so we call people leaders that Paul would have never called a leader. Listen to Paul's jealousy in 1 Timothy 3 when writing to a younger man considering people for influence in the church. He says, oh, you're actually praying for and looking for people to bear relational influence? Okay, great. Let me give you some qualifications or some metrics in order to be able to determine, to sift who makes it and who doesn't. And one of the things that Paul glosses over or crosses over is 1 Timothy 3.6. He says, a man can't be a new convert so that he doesn't fall into the same temptation of the devil. Well, that's a peculiar statement to make in the consideration of people who are going to bear influence in God's house or in the life of a church and a church family. He says, you can't be a new convert and bear leadership. You can't just get born again, but bro, you don't understand, man. Like when he prays, yo, I'm telling you, like he lights the room up. I don't really care. Bro, like I'm telling you, man, like he fits the demographic of the people we're trying to reach. And bro, he's got the look, he's got the vibe. Like we need him, man. Like it's going to become magnetic for, for the crowd or the culture that we're trying to reach. Don't really care about that. Paul says a person can't be a new convert because he's going to be tempted to fall into the same temptation of the devil. Well, what was the temptation of the devil? It was a recognition of individual gifting and desires that weren't submitted to God. Hear that. A recognition of individual gifting and desires that weren't intimately surrendered to the Lord and his leadership. It was an understanding of who I am and what I'm about that lived in consistent rebellion to the idea of submitting to God's transforming love and leadership. It was the idea that I can make a name for myself and I can do it my own way because I've got the goods. 
I've got the look. I've got a gift. I've got influence. I've got power. I've got a platform. It's the Isaiah 14. I will make a name for myself, and I will be exalted above the Most High and establish my throne in the heavens above the God that is up there. It's an understanding of individual gifting or ability leveraged towards your own influence or advance outside or in rebellion of submission to God. And his leadership at times that comes directly through leaders and a covenant people. It's the idea that if it's beneficial for you, you can buck the system or submission to do what's going to advance you. This is the very thing that Moses rejected. It's the very thing that Moses said he would not do. He would not take his own gifting and his own influence and compromise the leadership of a covenant people in order to advance his own cause. Paul said you have to be careful when you're looking for people that are going to bear influence because what they are is what they're going to reproduce. And then you find others, because I get it, we use the verbiage of a new convert, but just because we've been in church for 5, 10, 25, 40 years doesn't necessarily mean that we've advanced in the knowledge of God either. It does not mean because time is not equal to maturity. Time alone is not equal to, well, I've got 30 years in church and... Bro, like that can mean something, but it can also mean absolutely nothing. It can mean nothing according to your maturity level. Because we mature at the strength and the speed of our yes to the Lord. We mature at the strength and the speed of our yes to God. And it is impossible to advance in the knowledge of God without obedience. It is impossible to make moves in a forward direction in God without saying yes to the Lord's transforming love and leadership. You just can't do it. You might wow people with all types of other stuff. You, people might think you're incredible because you have influence or you have ability. People might be enamored because you've got some wild gifting or some, you know, demonstrative type thing. You flow and you go and God can use you in a variety of ways. But just because God chooses to use you doesn't mean that God's been able to mature you over time. Many are going to say, didn't we do these things? And the Lord is going to say, you absolutely did. But what I wanted, I never got from you. I never knew you. And Paul's jealousy wasn't just to do the stuff. Colossians 1, the knowledge of God. Ephesians 1, I'm praying for you for a spirit of wisdom and revelation, where in the knowledge of God, or in the knowledge of him, in the knowledge of Christ, to come upon you, where you would actually know him in a real, authentic, intimate, deep way. I'm telling you, don't get caught up with the fluff and the stuff and the swirl and all the attraction, even of ministry systems and invitations and influences. Anchor your life in the knowledge of God. Anchor your life in being willing to pay any, any price to love him, to obey him, to consider every consequence to his transforming love and his leadership in your life. The best way to get to destiny is obedience. The best way to get to destiny is the next invitation to obedience. The best way to get to destiny, to the dream, to whatever it is that God has said to you is greater submission. It's more yielding. It's a softer heart. It's walking the way that God invites you. Because there is nothing greater that reveals what's alive in you than the obedience that God invites you to. When God revealed himself to the children of Israel in Exodus 19, even when they didn't deserve it, and he said, I want you to be mine. This is a marriage proposal. I'm going to betroth myself to you. We're going to be legally married. Now over the tenure of legal marriage, we're going to go through the nitty-gritty details of how we're going to merge property and possessions. That's the process in Jewish culture for weddings. You have the pursuit, you have the proposal, you have the betrothal. Betrothal is very different than the idea of engagement in our culture, right? In our culture, engagement is not legal marriage. Well, in Jewish process and custom, betrothal is legal marriage. It's why when Mary was found to be pregnant, when she was betrothed to Joseph, 
He was going to leave her in the middle of the night in order that she did not have to confront what was the nitty-gritty details in Leviticus of being stoned to death for her unfaithfulness and adultery. And God says, we're going to go through the nitty-gritty details. And if you don't understand what betrothal is about, then you'll never be able to get traction right in Leviticus and Numbers. Leviticus and Numbers is the nitty-gritty details of how God is going to transform and reconfigure the lives of people that have been immersed or baptized into satisfying their appetites the way that the system of the age says to, to bring them into a place of loving obedience so that an invitation to do life God's way can reveal in them appetites that are still raging for the way of the world. But through the consistent application and effort and investment into obedience to do life the way that God says to through unique invitations, God is not only going to reveal appetites that are still alive on the inside that are raging even though we have the language, I love the Lord more than everything, there's appetites that are raging for the things that the world says we're supposed to love. But not only is God going to reveal those things, He's also going to give grace along the way to conquer those things. But if we never consider the invitation into intimate obedience and doing life God's way, then we never have the necessary access point in order for God to touch on or speak to or to reveal in his own evaluation of what's alive in our hearts to lay before us the things that are in us that God sees that we don't see because we don't always understand what's alive beneath the surface. And that's because we become masterful. We become very proficient and skilled in the art of living in superficiality yet glossing it over with spiritual language. We become masterful. And I say superficiality because you can't consistently resist obedience and think that you're going to live in the deep end of the knowledge of God. You can't consistently rebel against God's leadership and think that he is going to advance you, graduate you, immerse you into the deep end of his own choosing to reveal or to unveil himself. Because until we make the connection between the knowledge of God and acts of obedience, we will always be able to justify, even at times, spiritually with other people that we convince with wisdom that belongs to the world. And it'll sound like, oh, yeah, bro, I totally get it, man. Like, I wouldn't do that either, man. Like, that's super tough. Like, man, that can't be God because it leads to this conclusion. Or, bro, like, you know, that can't be the Lord because if it was the Lord, like, man, you'd lose or you'd regress or you'd take steps backwards or you'd seem to get this cut away or that can't be God. Who says? Who says it can't be? Right? This is what it sounded like to the rich young ruler. Now, 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 hear me. Rich young ruler. This is a young leader with great material wealth and influence. Go give away everything and come back and follow me my way. And at the consideration of the invitation to obedience, the text tells us in Mark chapter 10 that when he considered his real estate in this life, when he considered his material advantages or possessions or resources, in this life, when he thought about how not lucrative of an opportunity that was, it says that he was saddened and that he hung his head and turned his back on the invitation to follow Jesus, but not just to follow Jesus anyway, to follow Jesus his way, because he is Lord and his love becomes our leadership. Like Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, we've concluded that because one man died, now all have died. And now the love of God through the man Jesus has literally possessed us as a people. The love of God now controls us and constrains us. It's become our leadership in life. But this young leader for the past 2,000 years is now remembered for the thing that he was unwilling to let go. He's remembered for the thing that he couldn't possibly imagine living without. 
He is remembered in the text and throughout the age as the one that was unwilling to turn something over to God when invited to do so. There's testing on both sides. Man, it's easy to be desperate for God when you're living in desperate moments. It's easy to be on fire for God when you're living and trying to survive and and when you just can't make ends meet and, and you just can't seem to do this or do that and you don't have really anything but God. It's easy to make God everything when you don't have anything but God. But the testing for the rich young ruler was a man who seemed to have everything. And in the consideration of being redefined through an act of obedience, he was unwilling to turn the idea of his life over to God in order to obey him the way that he wanted him to. How many of us have an idea of ourselves that we're unwilling to let go? And the real resistance to the invitations of obedience to the Lord is not because we don't believe that he's unwilling to give us grace. Right? We understand God gives grace for everything he asks us to do regardless of how easy or how complicated, regardless of how trivial or how traumatic it may seem. God gives grace for every act of obedience. He's good. He doesn't ask us to do anything or go anywhere that he won't empower us to fulfill. So we understand that. At times, it's the difficulty with the re-identification. It's the difficulty with being redefined by obedience. It's letting go of who I want to be and what I think I'm about or the things that I feel I deserve to be able to have. It's the accomplishments, it's the notoriety, it's the possessions, it's the way of life that are still being influenced by the raging of the system of the age where we're more in love with the world at times than we are with God himself. And to this John speaks in 1 John. He says, beloved, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life these things are not from God, and they're fading, they're passing. Just like this age, they're going to go, and everything that was built upon them is going to be dismantled. He says, beloved, these things are not from God. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. I'm telling you, anything that you build upon the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not going to last it may seem to give you a momentary, insecure amount of comfort, but it's not going to prevail in the end of the age. And for this, this young influential leader refused to be redefined by God's love and leadership. I wonder what invitation to obedience God is extending in your direction in this season, that at the consideration of it, there's a hostility against the re-identification I don't want to be redefined that way. I don't want to have to interpret my own life differently than the way that I have up until this point. Well, this is where we find Paul's words in Philippians 3 and then concluding in Philippians 4 that should create a consequence, a shock and an awe in our own hearts as we look to the Lord and a desire floods our hearts for the knowledge of God in a greater way. Lord, we want to know you beyond all the superficial stuff and the way that I've satisfied my own spiritual life based off of ideals or intellect or activities. Lord, I actually want to know you and I want to know you in such a way that I can be successful in every season no matter what the context might be. And this is what Paul says in Philippians 3, 7 to 10. He says, but whatever things were gained to me, those things I've counted as a loss for the sake of Christ. And more than that, I count all things to be a loss. Why? In view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things, and I count them but rubbish so that I might gain Christ and so that I might be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that's derived from the law. Again, all of the externals, the systems, the formalities, it's the imaged-based spirituality with the cancer that's still alive on the inside and a love for the world that hasn't yet been conquered. He says, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him 
and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. What is Paul saying in these verses? He's saying there is no way that you would ever understand me unless you saw him the way that I did. You'd never be able to understand why I am the way that I am unless he revealed himself to you the way that he did to me. You'll never be able to get me. You can't put me in some little box. You just can't understand me from a distance. You can't critique me from afar and think that you're going to come to some conclusion on your own as to what fuels me, what motivates me, what moves me. You don't understand the way that he revealed himself to me. You don't understand the way that he touched me. He said, I used to be a man that was obsessed with the systems and the images. He said, according to the law, I was blameless. I had the history. I had the pedigree. I had all the accomplishments and the influence. He said, I had the power. I had the platform. But now I have something that has eclipsed even all of those He says, now I have something that's greater. It's far more valuable than all of the other things that I used to build my resume on. He says, I have the knowledge of God. He said, and you'd never get me unless you understood the way that I've seen him. He said, and not only did I lose all things, he didn't complain that he was upset about it. My heart always becomes a little questionable. When I hear people talking about how much they're giving up in order to love Jesus the way that he's been asking them to. When we major more on the things we're losing than on the Christ we're gaining. It it, it continues to give insight or indication that there are still appetites alive on the inside of you that have not necessarily been conquered in the way that they need to so that this joyful obedience that God invites us to can be his and now hear me I'm not saying that we're always immediately there but it is the place that we want to press into and pray into right God's not asking for just the external facade where you do whatever it is that he wanted you to do but you hate him all along the way where you despise him and you're aggravated and you're frustrated why because you can't have the thing that you want you know or that you want to have but you know that God has said something And you don't directly just want to live in disobedience, so you do whatever it is that God is saying, although you don't do it for him. You do it more for yourself so that you can excuse yourself knowing that you've done what it is that God said. This is not where Paul was. Paul said, I lost everything for him. And I did it with joy. Because when I saw him, and he gave me the invitation to know him, I realized in a moment that there was nothing else worth having. In Galatians 1, he says, at the right time, even though I didn't deserve it, he says, God chose to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him to the Gentiles. Paul wasn't coming with some self-help. He wasn't coming with the scriptures as some medication for all of the appetites that are still in love with the world. He wasn't treating the text or the scriptures of God in a way to endorse or authorize rebellion and a deep immersion in the things of the world. Paul wasn't using Bible verses, which we so often do in these days. We search the verses in order to find particular verses that are going to seem to endorse the way that we want to live instead of giving ourselves to God and being conformed by his leadership and transformed by the word so that we can become who he wants us to become, therefore giving him the obedience that he desires from us. Paul said, I wasn't upset about it. He said, I didn't run around constantly bragging about how much I gave up for him. He said, I wasn't talking about all the time how much I lost how much I gave up so that I could give him what he was asking for. He said, I wanted to know him. And in Philippians chapter 4, he said, because I was confronted by the knowledge of God and responded the way that God invited me to, he gave me real freedom. It's impossible to have and to know and to experience real freedom without knowing and experiencing the real knowledge of God. It is impossible. Jesus says in John 8, I know those that are mine. 
They're the ones that do what I say. They listen to me and they obey my voice. And because they do so, it leads them to encounter or experience the truth. And when they consistently live the truth, it brings them to the place where they then know or experience real freedom. And he who the Son sets free is free indeed. Well, we know the last verse without the context upon which that verse was built. We know he who the Son sets free is free indeed. But living in real freedom is by encountering what Jesus says is truth, which is his leadership, which is the consistency of his word alive in our hearts, leading us to obey him and to be conformed through his love and leadership to his way of life. And as we do that consistently, we then experience what he calls freedom. And Paul describes what this freedom, what this freedom feels like in Philippians 4. In Philippians 4, starting in 11, he says, which once again, we know 13. In verse 11, he says, I'm not talking to you because I have some crazy need. He says, my, my comments aren't coming because I'm being pressured to try to move you a certain way. He says, I'm not communicating the way that I am because I have some agenda in order to manipulate my articulation to get you to do something or go somewhere. He says, I'm free from all of that. He says, I'm not talking to you because I have some sort of need. He says, why? Because I've learned through a variety of seasons, being tested over a long period of time and having to go through the crucible of life where the knowledge of God was tested and apprehended in my life in a variety of ways as I was tested over a long period of time. He says, I've had a variety of seasons. I've lived in a variety of contexts. And he begins to describe what some of that looked like and felt like. He says, I've lived with absolutely nothing. He says, I've been pressured. I've gone without. Right to the Corinthians, he lays out his apostolic credentials against those who are the super apostles in their estimation. Those who have the look, they have the influence, they have the fancy articulation. Paul says, you think those are your guys? He says, let me tell you what I've been through as I've been tested by the Lord and tried over time. He says, I've been shipwrecked. I've been abandoned. I've been betrayed. I've been persecuted. I've dealt with unfaithful brothers, sheeps in wolves' clothing. He says, I've fasted and felt as if I was on the verge of life even leaving me. He says, I've received the lashes multiple times, the 39 lashes. It's funny, at the end of Galatians in chapter 6, he says, you're messing with me? And basically he says, let's take our shirts off and see what's what. He says, I bear on my body the marks of being faithful to God over a long period of time. Up against those who haven't gone through anything yet are claiming some level of superiority or influence. They're claiming a level of maturity that their life actually hasn't been revealed as they've been tested over time. There are just certain things that only time can give you. There are no shortcuts. There is no fast forward button. There is no quick and easy way to advance in the spiritual life. It's slow and steady over a long period of time. It's obey him today, obey him tomorrow. This is no roller coaster ride. It's slow and steady. And Paul says in Philippians 4, I, I live with nothing. He says, but I've also lived on the other side. Abundance, seeming surplus, Mountaintop, breakthrough, celebratory seasons where everything we touch seem to prosper and advance. He says, but you know, over a long period of time, I've learned something, right? There are certain things that you can only learn over a long period of time, which is then when your life becomes an influence and a resource in a community of faith to anchor people in the knowledge of God where you can intimately connect people to God and his purposes. It requires time, and time is an unavoidable crucible. And Paul says in 11 and 12, I've gone through time. He says it's been multiple decades now. I've gone through time, and God has tested me on both sides of the spectrum. He says, but I've learned, verse 13, that I can do all things because it's Christ in me. Well, this isn't just bumper sticker or Instagram bio Christianity, right? This isn't like refrigerator magnet Christianity. 
Paul is saying, my life has been broken under the weight of the beauty of God over long periods of time. And he's required from me things that in the moment I didn't feel I was going to be able to give him or do. But in every instance, he's given me grace as I've wrestled with his leadership to bring me into a place that was deeper and more relational in the knowledge of God than the previous version of myself that I was self-protecting under the mask or the guise of all of these other influences that were still alive on the inside of me. He says, but when I chose to turn over to him the very thing that at times I felt defined me, God granted me freedom. God granted me real freedom. God brought me into an experience of freedom that conquered my demand for a context. You see, because you don't understand how important a context is until God puts you in a context that you don't actually like. A context where you don't want to be faithful, where you don't want to serve, where you don't want to submit, where you don't want to come under leadership and come under his leadership. You don't understand Paul's real freedom until you've been in a context where you realize you're actually not free to love God and serve God the way that at times your language communicated you'd be willing to do. But oh, the joys of giving God what he wants. We will do anything you want, Lord. This is what they said before they had the details, right? We will do anything you want, Lord. We'll do anything. We'll do everything you say, will you now? Because I'm going to ask you to do things that are going to reveal things that are alive on the inside of you. I'm going to ask you to do things in order for you to be conformed in a greater way to my image and to be immersed in a greater way in the knowledge of God. But until you make the connection... That obedience is connected to the knowledge of God. You'll always be able to justify a lack of obedience in your life. But then what we have to do is we have to scramble to come up with a way to decorate our image. We have to redefine the terms upon which we determine maturity and success. When maturity and success are found in intimate obedience and surrender. Because all of the qualifications and the appraisals of the system of the world, all of the things that the influence of the world is demanding from your own heart and your own life are going to be trivial. They're going to fade. It's like an assignment and the danger in defining your life by an assignment. Assignments change. And for any one of you who feel you control the terms, Maybe you yet haven't realized that God can turn everything over in less than 24 hours. God can change everything about your life in a 24-hour period. And the difficulty in shifting with God is when we've determined our success or our identification is based more on an assignment and things that people around us or even the world itself applauds or appreciates rather than success being the metric that rests upon or is anchored in the knowledge of God. And Paul was a man that was transformed by the knowledge of God. And his heart cry became, I want to know the Lord. I want to know him, and it doesn't matter what season I'm in anymore. It doesn't matter what context you put me in. It doesn't matter what assignment God may lay upon my life, forgive me, because those things no longer define me. Those things are no longer my determiner for success. My determiner for success is I've lost everything for him, and I want to know him, and I'm going to continue to press into him with the grace that he gives me. Because this is the place of my anchoring and my abounding. It's the knowledge of God. It's the knowledge of God. And I feel the Lord extending an invitation to us this morning. To forsake the things that potentially have been creating unique resistance in our heart. From obeying him the way that he's been inviting us to. From giving him the very thing that he's been asking for. When you track through Leviticus and Numbers, you realize that God spoke to every area of their life. It was religious, and it was a whole sacrificial system. It was every area of civil matters, or the civility as they lived as family. 
and then it was every area of morality in their own individual life, public and private. God spoke to the nitty-gritty and the big-time visible things about who they were in his desire to transform them as a people to be his holy possession. And I believe that the voice of the Lord is alive and that it's active in your heart and in your life and that it's investigating and evaluating. It's moving to and fro and it's seeking a heart that's fully his on behalf of who he can show himself to be strong. I feel a real invitation this morning by the Spirit into a deeper place in the knowledge of God where we can say like Paul, my whole life has been transformed by the knowledge of God. My whole life has been redefined by the way that God in an ongoing way has revealed himself to me as he's continued to give me grace as I've come under his leadership to follow him his way where I'm not defining the success of my spiritual life based off of a variety of other metrics, but where my life is deeply anchored in God and where if I am confronted with the consideration, I could say like Paul, I've lost everything for him. Man, those of you that have walked with him for time, you realize that right on the other side of you giving God at that moment, what you thought was everything. Right on the other side is a fresh invitation to give him more than you ever thought you could. And at times, in the most personal, painful ways. You learn over time, following God is not always easy. I'm just here to be, to be absolutely real. Following God is not always easy. At times it's painful to give him what he wants. But we wrestle and we pray and we partner with grace to become transformed by his love and to come under his leadership because this is the people that he deserves. So I'm gonna ask everybody to stand this morning and I'm, I'm gonna pray for you personally and then I'm gonna ask us to respond in a particular way because I believe the Lord is after greater traction in our hearts with his leadership. Greater traction in our hearts with his leadership. And even as we've considered in times past, I know in moments before when I've had the privilege to be with you, suggested that the I is not greater than the us. That was Moses' charge. I'm not gonna make my name great if it means it's gonna compromise me being anchored in a people. That was Paul's jealousy. In Romans, I'd be willing to lose my own salvation and be cut off from the knowledge of God if it means that you would actually fulfill your word to my brothers. This is a spirit birth jealousy where yes, me personally, but also us corporately deepening, growing in the knowledge of God. I'm going to pray for us this morning. Lord, as we stand together and your spirit is at work in the midst of us, I am asking you to touch every heart in the room. Give grace, Lord. Give grace to respond to your love. Give grace to come under your leadership in a greater way. Give grace for the things that we hold near and dear, for the things that we feel have defined us. Give grace for the things that at times, through unique invitations and opportunities, there's just been resistance that's alive on the inside at the consideration or the application of another wisdom. Lord, we pray, do whatever you will. Have everything you want. We wanna be the people that you deserve. So do the work in our hearts that's necessary 
in order to be transformed by your grace. Do the work in our hearts that's necessary in order to gracefully, joyfully come up under your leadership. Do the work, Lord, in each one of us to where like Paul, when he looked back over his life, he said, I used to live life in a way that brought me to determinations and conclusions where I built the success or the idea of my life off of things that are fading off of appearances and ideals, ideas or ideologies that belong to the system of the age, the lusts of the flesh and the lusts of the eyes and the pride of life. But now I've seen him, but now I've encountered him, but now his love has been extended to me and oh, the joy and the freedom I've found. The joy and the freedom that I've found in being all his and following him his way. Lord, we want to be a people who obey you by the power of the Spirit. So Holy Spirit, in us, lead us there. Lead us there. Pour out your Spirit upon us as a people, Lord. Pour out your Spirit upon us as a people, Lord. We want to be your holy possession, but that means something. Pour out your spirit upon us, Lord. 